If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, let's talk about the core tenet of healthcare. What do we typically do? Someone tells you a problem, you instantly want to fix it. That doesn't work because you barely understand the context. You barely understand the person. You don't understand the problem. You're just coming in very top down and trying to enforce your worldview, your perspective, your understanding of their disease, not understanding their understanding of their own illness. So for me, what I learned with illness narratives was how powerful it can be to create space for someone to just listen to their story. And that's it. Not to comment not to clarify, not to try to problem-solve. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back to Healthcare for Humans, Joining us today is Odette, a family medicine physician with a deep understanding of caring for the Latinx community, particularly those who are undocumented. This is part of our Latinx series and our two-part segment on caring for people who are undocumented. Our conversation today centers around the concept of illness narratives. This concept was first introduced by sociologist Arthur Frank in his book, The Wounded Storyteller body, illness, and ethics. If I had to give a one-sentence definition of illness narratives, it would be this. Illness narratives are personal stories individuals share about their experiences with illness or health challenges. Now, when you hear that, you might be thinking, that sounds basic, and don't we already do that in healthcare? We do, kind of, and sometimes. But mostly, we lean towards our current medical paradigm, focusing on objective symptoms and tests for good clinical outcomes. Don't get me wrong, this is often important, necessary, and effective. I'm not arguing that, but it's often insufficient. Let's talk about two reasons. One, it doesn't always address the bigger picture and root cause of diseases. And two, it diminishes how we, humans, experience disease and process suffering. For example, let's consider situations where the root causes extend well beyond clinical care, such as the impact of climate change on asthma or the mental health effects of immigration and documentation status, which we'll be talking about today. In these instances, illness narratives, or merely listening to people's stories, become indispensable and sometimes the only thing you can do. They allow us to hear the person we're caring for and stand by them as we advocate for structural changes. The second reason is our current medical paradigm tends to diminish people's experience of suffering when they have an illness. We are humans, and when we suffer, we try to process it, make sense of it, and find a way to move forward. It's much more than just about clinical outcomes. It's about sense-making. Illness narratives allow people to do just that. It allows us to create meaning and a space for connection, solace, validation, and empathy. I'm excited for today's episode with Odette. The focus is on folks who are undocumented, but we will explore the challenges faced by undocumented individuals through the lens of illness narratives. Then we'll examine how susto is attributed to illnesses and unravel the complexities of talking about intimate partner violence with patients who are undocumented. Odette, who has a lot of experience in this field, will generously share her insights 
and offer strategies for providing culturally responsive care in these situations. Here's Odette. Hi, Odette. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to have you on today. We're going to be talking about caring for undocumented persons today. Before we get started, tell me about yourself. Sure. So my new identity is I am a couple months of being a family medicine intern. I moved here from Rhode Island and then from there, Indiana. So I've been jumping around all over the country. But one of the recurrent narratives of my journey has been my mother's from Guatemala and growing up there throughout my childhood and spending a long period of time during my life gave me a passion to work with the Latina community wherever I am and just be a source of support to that community. And I'm really honored to be family medicine physician. And part of that journey to be family medicine physician was because I wanted to be able to treat everyone of all ages, legal statuses, skin colors. And I felt like that was the perfect place in medicine for me. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. I want to first start with your history with illness Mm -hmm. narrative. You've done a lot of work around that, I think in Guatemala, in Chicago, and with indigenous Peruvians. Tell me what illness narratives mean to you, and why has so much of your life been doing illness narratives? Why has it felt important to you? Definitely. I think that I grew up listening to illness narratives from a very young age. That is how my mother and my grandmother and my family talked about illness and how it makes meaning in our lives and trying to make sense of illness. So coming from a culture that is just so much about storytelling as a way of transmitting information, culture, history, I always felt like stories were the most powerful vehicle for change and also to better understand someone and also to understand yourself. So I felt like wherever I was in the world, I ended up kind of playing the role of a listener and feeling like creating space for someone to tell their story and make meaning of their story and their illness was a powerful tool of healing. And I think that's the approach that I try to bring to medicine, realizing that's a lot harder as a doctor when there's so many competing responsibilities. I came at it from an anthropological background where all you need to do is just sit and create space for active listening and hearing someone's story and helping them make meaning out of it. And I think that what's really important is when working with patients, trying to understand the disease. Like for type 2 diabetes, like we know exactly the mechanism of how it damages the body. We know how the pharmacokinetics, we know the medications that we need to prescribe these patients that help them get back to health. But I think that what we miss sometimes is the illness aspect of the disease and illness meaning the illness experience of that patient. What does meaning diabetes have to them? How has it changed their lives? How do they understand the process in which that they got diabetes and how has it changed their lives and how has it changed how they see their future? And I don't think we have those conversations enough. And there's another anthropological term called illness scripts. And it's the ways in which people really understand their illness. And when I was doing research in, in Guatemala at home and It was a more rural community that never had experienced chronic illness, and diabetes was the first chronic illness that community had. And I'm sure there were chronic illnesses, but there was never something that was in the consciousness of people, that there could be an illness, a disease that you could never be cured of. And a lot of the people that I talk to understand to diabetes to be caused by susto. Susto is this big event. It could be that you were walking down the street and someone scared you, and that's a susto. It could be the death of someone important to you. These sustos are believed to cause diabetes, and that's a common illness script or illness narrative of patients, and it's something that understanding where patients are coming from helps us understand further how we can help them manage their illness experience better, manage their disease better. Another understanding was that once the doctor or healthcare provider says, okay, I think we need to start insulin, that can be seen as a death sentence. That is seen as, okay, 
everyone who's on insulin dies. So when I'm on insulin, that means that it must be really bad. That means that this is really serious. And again, like with everything, anthropology falls into this realm of generalizations. You talk to 15 people in a small community in this one context, and then you try to make generalizations, realizing that inherently has danger to it as well. And the other aspect of anthropology that made me stray away from it was the fact that I felt that it's great to interview people, create the space where they're able to share their experiences, try to build healing within that, that active listening process and that illness narrative. But then at the end of the day, you write the paper and then where does it go and what does it change? And that was what led me to medicine, thinking that I could play a more active role in listening to these narratives and then helping that guide my management and my patient care. We need people like you. How has it been incorporating what you know in anthropology to clinical medicine? Because I think healthcare often doesn't make sense or doesn't make space for illness narratives and patients' experience of illness. I think it's worth clarifying here because I know a little bit of anthropology in that there's a specific definition of illness versus mm-hmm. disease. Maybe we first clarify that. And then I'm curious to hear your journey on attempting to bring in this knowledge of anthropology that you hold and what we call sometimes as patient-centeredness mm-hmm. in healthcare. We have a separate terminology. And what that has looked like for you? Definitely. How I understand it is illness is the patient experience of disease. Disease is what's happening inside the body outside of the patient experience. And I think that dichotomy is where we don't listen to patients and we don't hear what they're telling us and we keep prescribing and pushing a plan that does not feel right to them. I think that's where that disconnect happens, where you're thinking you're on the same page with the patient talking about nutrition and exercise and insulin. And then questioning why you're talking about the same things every single visit. I guess that's what I've been realizing is that in the 15-minute or 30-minute visit, there's so much of agenda setting, certain tasks that you need to do as a physician, and then realizing there is really no space for understanding the illness of the patient, the individual patient-centered experience of what it means to have a certain disease, whether it's acute or chronic. So I'm still figuring it out in terms of how to best incorporate my anthropological illness narrative background into medicine. I hope that when I'm crafting my future practice, maybe creating time for certain patients who I think would really benefit just to have a follow-up visit where all we do is listen. I have no immunizations to give and I've had no questionnaires to offer and no medication changes, but literally all that we're planning to do is just, I want to hear your experience. I want to hear your story and the space is yours. I want to better understand you so I can help better take care of you. I like that. I love what you're trying to do. My follow-up question to that is, people struggle with this conflict of clinician understanding of disease and patient's understanding of illness. You brought up a good example of diabetes, as from our understanding, is a disease caused by insulin resistance. For the patient, it could be caused by so many things, including susto. When that occurs, I think it's easy for people to dismiss the patient's understanding of the illness and trying to impose our understanding. Because we're right, they're wrong. Is there a different approach to that without losing the patient's dignity? Because there's power in our dynamic, and now we're imposing this view of the world on them and telling them they're wrong, like they're not intelligent enough to know the truth, and we have to change what they understand. Those are the messages I feel like sometimes is internalized. That doesn't feel good, and that's not a good experience people have, and obviously that doesn't lead to trust. I think that using the type 2 diabetes example, I think that the way we talk about the etiology of diabetes with patients is very punitive. It's always about diet and eating too much sugar and not exercising. I think that it inherently feels punitive to patients, especially if their understanding of how they develop diabetes is different from ours. And I think that if they have a different understanding and we're not able to bridge those two understandings, then how are we expecting to move forward from that in a meaningful way? 
And yeah, I think that in terms of the susto analogy, I think there is a lot of validity to both understandings. I think that, yes, obviously, like influent resistance, we know this. But I think it's really important not to discount the patient experience of their illness and the fact that a susto is often a big event, a very traumatic event at times. And if someone experiences a traumatic event like a partner dying or being robbed, couldn't that lead to mood changes that would also lead to different lifestyle behaviors or lifestyle habits or increased cortisol levels if someone is going through a really stressful time in their lives? And thinking about how the cortisol level pathway could also be related to insulin resistance. If you really want to go all the way to like more of a biomedical approach, I think that a lot of the understandings of people and patients, I think there's a lot more connections to the pathophysiology than we think. But I think that it doesn't even matter. I think what actually matters more is just meeting the patient where they are. And I think that listening and acknowledging their understanding is the most important thing. And then using that as a platform to create a shared understanding. Yeah, I love that response because there was an elegant connection of understanding of an illness from a patient perspective to the biomedical model. And then you dismiss that we need to always do that. But I think it's helpful for some folks to see that connection, to acknowledge that it may exist. Because there's one part of the discounting that we just talked about where you discount the relation to the diabetes. Susto didn't really cause the diabetes, did it? And the second part of the discounting where we say, oh, we won't talk about the Susto because it's such a big deal to you, brought it up, but that's not really related to the diabetes. Let's talk about the mm-hmm. diabetes again. When maybe that Susto, if you asked, it was a traumatic death of a partner, right? That is the thing in their life. And we say that doesn't matter. And that's the message that we've conveyed. Do you feel like that's a correct interpretation of what you're talking about? Yeah. Let's keep going with this illness narrative. You have done illness narratives in many settings. Let's start with Guatemala, because you were there doing illness narratives specifically about diabetes. What did you learn and how has that affected? Have you grown into being a clinician? So for me, what I learned with illness narratives was how powerful it can be to create space for someone to just listen to their story and that's it. Not to comment, not to clarify, not to try to problem solve. And that is something that I try to take with me in medicine where I think the framework in which we approach problems is from a problem solving angle. That we're taught to do. That's how we solve multiple choice questions, which I don't think are a great way of learning medicine. And that molds our minds into this like problem solving, or people who are drawn to being problem solvers end up in medicine. So you get these people who all they want to do is someone tells you a problem and you instantly want to fix it. That doesn't work because you barely understand the context. You barely understand the person. You don't understand the problem. You're just coming in very top down and trying to at times enforce your worldview, your perspective, your understanding of their disease, not understanding their understanding of their own illness. So I think that the experience I have collecting illness narratives and realizing and is understanding how meaningful that can be for people to have that space. And then Arthur Kleinman is like the father of medical anthropology. And he has a whole book about how illness narratives make meaning out of everything and actually part of what it means to go on through life and to handle the fact that disease can just disrupt our lives completely. We see that all the time with our patients. There's so much suffering involved in the illness experience and illness narratives creating a cohesive story of this is what happened to me and this is how it made me feel and this is how where I am now and this is what it all means. Actually, making sense of disease actually helps people overcome it and make process it and also push through it. So Arthur Kleinman talks a lot about the healing that can happen with an illness narrative. I think that's what the main thing of what I take with me is trying to not be a problem solver, just trying to be an active listener and realizing how hard that can be going through medical training and being thrown out another path of being not the listener, but the doer, when sometimes doing also can cause harm more often than not. Yeah, that was beautiful. I think I'm reflecting on 
how much we use the word active listening as a way to problem solving. I think in medicine, even active listening, we say, oh, you actively listen, then you can problem solve and then give them a solution. And what are the assumptions we hold of what the patient or the person in front of us really needs at that moment? Because we assume every visit should be a problem solving mm-hmm. visit when that may not be the case. I don't think we ever consider that. And what does it mean to consider that and build a system to make room for just relationships, listening and healing in that way, where nothing actually ends up being quote unquote solved. Yeah, But then in the end, I think that we're actually maybe even doing more for our patients than we are otherwise. And it kind of ties in nicely with this idea of taking care of undocumented patients. When I was doing those illness narratives in Guatemala specifically, in a place that was rural and with a lot of machismo culture where men had a dominant role in women. So many of the women that I interviewed told me, they said, you're the first person to ever ask me that question. You're the first person who's ever sat with me and listened to me. You're the first person that I've ever told that story. And I remember being very grateful that that I was able to hear those stories and also just a profound sense of injustice that I think that's just a small example of that we live in a society where we are not prioritizing people's stories or not prioritizing the listening to those. And I think that thinking about documented folks in the U.S. and their stories of trauma, whether they're fleeing from trauma in their home countries, the trauma of arriving to the U.S. and then coming to the U.S. and realizing that their journey was going to be continually fraught with trauma and discrimination and stigma and fear, so much fear. There's a lot of suffering there. And then we meet patients and there's just a million things to do. And we don't usually have that space and time to hear their story and get to know them. And another big thing for me, just like growing up in a Latino household and illness narratives was how important relationship building is for every patient, particularly for the Latinx community that when people come to the doctor, you're wanting to create that relationship. And not only anecdotally, but also like from my family experiences, from my research, there's this kind of recurrent thread that like people want to be treated as a person. They want their doctor to um, open the door and have a couple pleasantries involved. They don't want to jump right into the, okay, or how's this and this? They want to How's your dog? How's it going with your church? How are your plans going in your home? How's your cousin? That kind of relationship piece is so important. And in terms of patient-centered care for undocumented folks, but also like Spanish-speaking folks in general, that is such an important piece in the, the relationship building and the kind of just setting aside like one minute, the first minute of any patient encounter, just to making them feel comfortable in this space and feeling safe and comforted. Yeah, I love it. I want a healthcare system like that, and I want you to be my doctor. So the idea of approaching encounters with a culturally responsive mm-hmm. way, right, especially for Latina patients who face machismo in their own culture is very important. And I want to take this moment to transition to taking care mm-hmm. of undocumented folks. And I want to lay the context that there are over 11 million undocumented persons in the U.S. And The thing about being undocumented is that you're undocumented and you're working in physically demanding jobs, sometimes dangerous jobs, constructions, landscaping, factory work, restaurant work. You've almost always experienced severe trauma crossing the border, if that is how you came to the U.S. Then you experience further trauma living in the U.S. because you have fear of deportation, financial stress, language barriers. And you've never addressed often the psychological, physical, and sometimes sexual violence that you experience crossing the border. And they carry all these risks of trauma they've experienced. And sometimes this can lead into decision-making. This is an uncommon situation, but there was a situation that was written down in an article about someone who decided they didn't want chemotherapy for breast cancer because she had a child that was not here with documentation. So she was worried, even if it isn't concrete or an imminent threat, she didn't want to risk it. It's just that fear can lead to delays of care and avoiding care overall. You've done a lot of work with undocumented folks. 
tell me what am I missing in the description of the context and what it has meant for you caring for undocumented folks? I think that was a very great overview in terms of the multiplicative vulnerabilities of undocumented folks and the fact that their experiences are so multifaceted in ways that myself as someone who's documented will never truly understand. And I think a lot of my work in medical school was working with undocumented women who experience intimate partner violence and their experience being undocumented and also experiencing this violence and how their legal status affected the whole experience. And I think that especially what Trump was president, there was just this overwhelming fear for people who didn't have papers. There was talk that if you were at a clinic, an ICE officer could just ask for someone. And I was working with clinics trying to figure out how to legally get around showing them where this person was and thinking of like sanctuary sites and thinking of the fact that I know people who are free to go on the bus because they think if they go on the bus, they'll be deported. Or women who are in the ED with bruises and fractures and caring doctors that are asking them like, What's, can you tell us what's going on? How can we help you? And just being so afraid of deportation. And I think that for mothers specifically who are undocumented, fear does not come from them being deported. The fear comes from them being separated from their children. And that is the most overwhelming fear that any mother can have. And in the situations of the women I was working with, this fear was compounded by the fact that if they were separated from their children, they would be left in the hands of the person who was abusing them and feeling a sense of feeling trapped. I'm going to generalize here. I'm thinking just about the Guatemalan context. Domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and there's research on this, is just not criminalized in the same way that it should be. You don't call the police in Guatemala because of domestic violence because you're not necessarily sure if they'll be helpful in the situation or actually harmful, if they will believe what's going on. And the same thing happened in the U.S., unfortunately, where because of cultural barriers, because of language barriers, because of discrimination and sexism, women don't know who to turn to. And they're afraid that if they involve the police, that this will lead to deportation. They fear that if they involve doctors, that will lead to deportation and separation from their children. And I think that as a medical community, we don't know a lot about the legal system in terms of how the ramifications on undocumented people, what benefits that they're accessible to, what legal statuses are they applicable for. And the same goes for our patients where they also don't know their legal rights. When you go across border patrol, when you're applying for asylum, there's no one person and there should be this person who's saying, you as someone who is on U.S. soil, you're not a U.S. citizen, but you're on U.S. soil, you have certain rights. And one of those in this case is that if you're a victim of a crime, whether it's a robbery or any sort of crime or domestic violence, because that's a crime that happened on U.S. soil, if you cooperate with the police, that is a pathway to citizenship. And that's called the U visa. And there's so many other examples of these kind of inherent legal benefits or access benefits. They're very few and far in between. But I think that we don't know the rights of our undocumented patients and neither do they. And I think that's a place where some more education for both ourselves as a medical community and also for our patients would be able to empower them to live safer in the U.S. and feel safer in the U.S. I think we always kind of create a space to just acknowledge how hard it is to restart your life from scratch in a place where you don't have community, in a place where you don't know the language, in a place where in some states in the U.S., you can't access a license, so you can't drive. You're reliant on public transportation, and maybe you're using a car, but you're driving a car without a license to see if you're undocumented, or you can't access work, meaningful work, or work that is safe, or work that has benefits because you don't have a work permit or because you don't have papers. And all of that burden is so heavy on top of that compounding fear. Yeah. Yeah. I want to suspend people's maybe questions of what are the rights of undocumented folks? Because I want to reorient people to when people are harmed or suffering, it's our ethical duty 
as clinicians and healthcare systems to care for them. And that's just our duty. And we need to figure out how and how to do that in a kind and caring way. So many facets of being undocumented make it so it's hard to receive the care you need. One part you highlighted in one of your research papers is about screening for interpartner violence. You talked about already how there's fear of getting the care they need. And after facing that fear, showing up to a healthcare system, making a visit, seeing a doctor, we give millions of questionnaires and we don't get the truth or the information. For example, we screen for interpartner violence a lot. And one question we often ask is, do you feel safe at home? Tell me what your thoughts are about that question. And is that enough to get the information we need? Yeah, long story short, I do not think that question is sufficient. They've done studies where they screen different types of questions and they stratify them and they've all decided all the statistical stuff where they figure out the right phrasing for probably typically a non-minority population. And then they're like, okay, this is going to be the question that, that we asked on our screener. And I'm not against questionnaires. I think that they can be helpful, but they're very limited in what they're able to do. And I think that for intimate partner violence, particularly for undocumented folks, I think that there is so much inherent vulnerability in that experience. And it's all related to talking about with the fear. Just talking with all the different people that I talked to with my research and interviews is that for many women, especially during the Trump administration, when they heard that question, their instant gut reaction was, oh my gosh, I can't let them know what's going on because I don't want to lose my children. I don't want to be deported. In the medical field, we assume that patients trust us. And I don't think that is always the case. And I don't think that we should assume that either. I think that trust is built and trust is earned. And I think that sometimes we assume that we have trust when we should be working really hard to earn it from our patients as opposed to assuming that we have it. And that goes back to the relationship building piece. And first and foremost, this building relationship with someone who is fearful of the medical system, fearful of any institution. And people who are undocumented are fearful of the doctor, of the bank, any sort of institution that feels governmental is a place where they could be. And also you're right in the clinic, what are we doing? We're collecting demographic information all the time. We're collecting their name, their date of birth. All of this information feels scary to give. And I think that another thing that we don't do enough besides relationship building and also earning trust and recognizing how precious that trust can be is not acknowledging documentation status. I see it so often where, like, in the ED or in the hospital, we skate around the fact that people are undocumented without meeting it head on. Um, so what I try to do with patients whenever I see that they're self-pay, and I think it helps because I speak Spanish as well, and I have the accent and all these things. I always ask if they're undocumented. I ask if they don't have papers. Uh, I say this is just important for me to know, but this information is not going anywhere. I want to understand more about how you came to the U.S. I just say, I don't care what your legal status is. I just want to take care of you. And this is an important information for me. And I'm not writing it down in electronic health record. But I think it helps me be able to help you better. And just normalizing it. Normalizing the fact that they're undocumented. Normalizing the fact that I will never call the police. This is a safe and trusted space where you can be undocumented and you can be safe. And then letting the conversation go from there. But I think it's also really important not to write in the electronic health record any information that could be requested by a legal entity. So just being mindful of the words that we use in the vocabulary that we use when documenting patient stories as well. Yeah, such an important point about normalizing and building safety in the moment when you see the patient, of acknowledging that some people don't have papers and it That's doesn't okay. matter to me right now and you're not going to be in trouble because as you said we assume people have trust or we're fearful of going into that space so we just don't even mention it and it's clearly on people's minds because it's on people's minds everywhere they go and this is another situation where they could be at risk so they're going to evaluate every recommendation every plan with will this risk me being deported and being away from my children, as you said, exactly. specifically. I want to go back to 
the actual questioning of understanding and listening, asking about interpartner violence for people who are undocumented, specifically the Latinx population. You talked about earlier that it's important to talk about just them as a person. How are you? How are your kids? Como están sus hijos? Before jumping into, quote unquote, the business mm -hmm. of the visit, because it almost seems rude and that you don't care really about them. How can they trust you? The second part is the actual question of, do you feel safe at home? Even outside of the questionnaire, if we ask that, sometimes you may not get the information that you're trying to get. And I think in the paper, you talk about giving more context to it. How are you feeling with everything that is going on? We know the situation can cause a lot of stress at home. Because of this, we're asking all patients if they feel safe with the people they live with. A lot more words. Did you find that phrasing helped create a space where people shared more compared to, do you feel safe at home? Yeah, I think just like you said, creating context for the question and also normalizing the question and saying it's universal, that we're asking all people this, every person that walks in the door. Because I think that if people automatically feel targeted or feel judged, that also can decrease, disrupt the relationship building. So I think coming at it from a place of trying to get to know the person before asking these incredibly vulnerable questions that require so much bravery and so much trust from the person. I think that I have talked with a lot of people and it doesn't really matter the phrasing necessarily. I think what matters is the context and what matters is the tone and the body language and eye contact and creating a space where people feel comfortable to share how they're feeling. And Part of the other context of that is if you have a strong suspicion that someone is experiencing domestic violence and does not feel comfortable sharing that with you, I think that there's a couple of framing things that you can do to try to make someone feel more comfortable. That being said, I don't care what your legal status is, whether or not you're undocumented. I think that if a part of who you are, I would never call the police. It's private. This is confidential. This is not going anywhere outside of this room. And calling attention to the fact that there is misinformation. So I think that through my research, there were so many examples of women being told by their partners who were abusing them that if they told someone about what was going on, they would be deported. So a lot of misinformation, a lot of saying that you have no rights in this country. If you tell anyone anything, you will be separated from your child. And often the children were born in the U.S. and were in the U.S. citizens. There was this kind of push and pull that you are undocumented, your kids are documented, I am documented. We have power here, you do not have power here. So that's another theme, giving power to people and empowering them to share how they feel and know that there are no repercussions. And I think that comes back to the problem solving also. I think that there is also a fear that if you disclose about intimate partner violence, so the doctor would have to do something about it. They're going to say, you have to leave right now. You have to go to a shelter right now. You have to leave your situation. The problem solving the doing. When with the cycle of domestic violence, it's a journey that people are on. And very often the person's experience that that violence has to be ready to leave that situation. And they might come back to that situation. It's a very cyclical manipulation, the cycle of power and control. So just acknowledging that you're just there to listen and not do, and that there are no repercussions, that we can just keep talking about this every time. We just want to know that you're safe. And prioritizing knowing about the fact that domestic violence shelters are available for people who are undocumented, which people don't know about, that there are legal options one thing that I'll tell people if they do say, oh, I'm experiencing events and I thank you so much for telling me that I really appreciate your bravery. And I want you to know that if you feel unsafe, you do have rights in this country as someone who's experienced domestic violence. You have access to domestic violence shelters as someone without status. And we don't do this enough, but going back to talking about legal options for status, there are various different ways people get citizenship besides asylum. And asylum is for people who are coming from their home country fleeing persecution. 
fleeing violence. There's a very specific definition for asylum seeking, and there are very specific categories that people's experiences can fall into for to be legal and for them to actually be able to apply for asylum. And if to apply for asylum when they get to the U.S. with a specific period of time, it's all very complicated because we're creating barriers for people to get legal status, of course. It's not meant to be easy. And there's asylum, but there's also the Violence Against Women Act, which was passed in the 1990s in recognition of the fact that people without status, without legal status in this country, were experiencing crimes, specific intimate partner violence. And due to fear of deportation, we're not disclosing. And this is a crime in the U.S. So based on all that, Violence Against Women Act was passed. And that grants legal support for nonprofits and also creates a system in place where undocumented folks can apply for citizenship if they experience domestic violence in this country or if they experience a crime in this country or the TV set, which is for people who have experienced trafficking, either sexual trafficking or work trafficking. So I think for medical providers who are providing IPV screening for undocumented folks, I think knowing that there are legal options for citizenship that can get people a work permit, like people will eventually a green card. It's a super long process, but knowing that option exists because for many people experiencing intimate partner violence when documented, often enough, they have children. They are dependent on their abuser financially. They have limited social support coming from another country and just coming to the U.S. a couple months ago. They're actually isolated by the abuser more often than not from making social community and making community in general. Because they're undocumented, they don't have access to a driver's license in most states. Because they're undocumented, they don't have access to work. They can find there are options, but they are not safe options or their home life their partners preventing them from working outside the home. They are afraid to access institutions that would help them. They're afraid to go to the doctor because they're afraid of how much it will cost. Or if the doctor's going to ask them questions they don't know how to answer to because they're too afraid. They're afraid to deliver in a hospital because domestic violence usually increases during pregnancy. It's just this like very horrible trend that's been documented across different patient populations. And we're so many stories of undocumented women who are pregnant and this fear that once they deliver the baby taken away from them that their partner would tell someone that they're undocumented and the fact that their baby had legal status mean that they would stay here and not be with them and then when we ask someone that question of are you safe at home we're not realizing everything that's going on behind people's heads every single fear Every single misconception, every single assumption, so much fear from everything that they've experienced coming to a head and then fearing that this is too risky to say anything. I don't know what's going to happen. So to try to sum up what health professionals can do, a couple things. Initially, relationship building before asking the question. Creating context to why we're asking intimate partner violence and what we're actually asking in a way that makes sense to the patient. Talking about the fact that whether or not they have, whether or not they're experiencing domestic violence, there is support for people who are undocumented, that there is legal support, there are social supports, and describing what those are so that people feel empowered that if they do share something, there are options for them. I think that this is a very microcosm on one particular topic, but I think there are probably so many questions that we ask in medicine that are very vulnerable and hard questions for patients to answer. And we think we're asking a simple question, and then there's a whole world going on in our patient's mind. And then we just hear yes or no question. That was a great Thank summary. Thank you of for course. summarizing everything like that. And I'll add yes to the questionnaires because one, I think, Often the questionnaires, as you noted, they are created for a general population and often aren't culturally relevant or responsive to specific populations. And two, as you noted, also how it's administered, because I think everybody acknowledges the importance of these questions and it becomes so routine and rote, like you're looking at the EHR while asking, do you feel safe at home? That happens so much. 
you said it's so important to look at the patient and make eye contact. And I'm sure everybody's nodding their head. Yeah, obviously, it's such an important question. But then you see how it's actually done in the reality of healthcare systems. And it's not done that way. So the obvious things aren't done. And that makes it hard for patients to ever tell you honestly or build trust when you're asking these questions that have such heavy answers. As you said, do you feel safe? And all the things that's going in the patient's mind and mind about this specific question. And they're not going to say no, because you're not even looking at that when you're asking and you're already on to the next one. So being careful about that. The last question that I have for you, Odette, is about system level advocacy. When I was preparing for this episode, there's a question posed about how do physicians or clinicians advocate for patients? This has been discussed in many contexts, but sometimes people divide it into two components of advocacy. One is called agency, which is you're working on behalf of the interest of an individual patient. Like this patient's prior authorization for medication didn't go through. I'm going to advocate for them and get it because it's so important. And then activism, which is clinicians advocating from system level and social change because of what we're witnessing. The second part, there was a lot of controversy and I think still is about what is the appropriate role for a clinician in that space. I think people skew towards, yes, we need to be active in policy and system level changes because so many problems that we witness at the individual level is because of system level problems. And if we're not advocating for change there, we're not actually helping the patient nor being effective in healing. So personally, I do believe that we need to be activists in the system level to make change. What does that look like for undocumented patients from your perspective? I think when I worked with undocumented patients as a family medicine physician, as a medical student, as a pathologic researcher, like in every single different context, I think that because of the system, we get, I feel like as someone who's providing care, so much of my job just gets bogged down by the first thing you said, the agency, the filling out paperwork and advocating for them. And oh my gosh, I'm calling the breast specialist because they really need to be seen by you. And I've done everything in like sitting down and filling out the paperwork with them after 5 p.m. because everyone else has left. That's where I'm at right now. And I think that it's so hard because undocumented folks have so many barriers to care. I think that so much of that fall on the patient to shoulder that burden and wanting to shoulder that burden with them on an individual basis is where I'm at right now. And I think that is where a lot of my time ends up going, thinking about individual patients and how to help them get the care that they need in a broken system. I'm trying to do my best every day. And before residency, I just had more time for it. And I feel like physicians, and I talk to like residents and some early physicians who feel that way were in previous lives before they were in medicine, they had the space and the capacity to do advocacy, to write op-eds, to work with community organizations on a longitudinal way, to protest. There's literally a million ways to do activism, which is amazing because I think that they all have their place and I think they're all amazing in terms of bringing about change. I think the burden of documentation and doing medicine and trying to do individual advocacy for patients comes to the detriment of having the time, the space to also advocate for patients on a larger scale. So I think that's something I'm very mindful of in terms of thinking about my career is how to create space to do advocacy and be on the ground in quotes where I'm in the room with patients, working with nonprofits, trying to meet people where they're at. And I think that the system itself doesn't create space for making the system better. There isn't space in our work and our life to do that kind of activism. And I feel like so much of that activism happens on my free time off, which because it's something that I care so much about, it's the pleasure and it's an honor to be able to try to help as best as I can. But there is no space for that in our work schedule. So it happens on people's weekends. It happens on the after hours after work. And 
it's also hard to organize as well, because I think we're all so busy and we're all pulled in so many directions that it's difficult to organize. And I think that one individual can only do so much. And I think we need to work more collectively together. Yeah, I want to hear your answer to the question. But... Yeah, I think I'll end on a note of Please. optimism. Like we all have seasons in our life because even you have done these wonderful things in helping specific communities in the ways you could with the illness narrative work prior to what you're in right now in residency. And there is life outside of residency one where the season of life looks different with more space and time. But for some people, it can still be busy because you have families, you have maybe your personal health, like some things can just fluctuate up and down. So it can also depend on each day, week or month. But there is hope in that we're all working on this together. So we support each other and build relationships to do this together. Always easier said than done, but it is possible because that's the only way we can continue to do the work we're doing. And I often talk about how hope is not just a feeling, but an art and a skill that we actively cultivate every day because we've imagined a better future and we patiently work towards it together. So I want everybody to hold on to that note of hope. And Odette, even if you don't feel like you're making system level change, this was an amazing conversation. I think people will have learned a lot from this. I think it will inform a lot of people's care and make the difference that you may never get feedback on, even if it's a single patient that finally got the question about interpartner violence in a way that they felt like they could be honest about. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was beautifully said. I feel more hopeful already. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you like this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person so they can also hear it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App, and that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.